Well, good morning. How did we go? What did we spend some of our 200 million, couple billion? What did we spend some money on? Just yell it out. Drug rehab. Drugs. Um, oh, drug rehab. Oh. Christian school. Boat. Social housing. Social housing. Double the pastor's wage. Anyone throw a big party? Anyone have a big holiday? Anyone book out a cruise ship and take all their friends? I don't want to be your friend then, do I? Alrighty, we're in Esther 1 verses 1 to 9 this week. We're in the book of Esther for the next few months. Um, I'm going to do verses 1 to 9 this week and John is going to then head into the rest of Esther chapter 1 next week. And we're in this sermon series, Esther chapter, it's all about Esther. Esther, the book's called Esther. She's one of the main characters yet. Chapter 1 is B.E., before Esther. And the author highlights the king. And so it's interesting, we need to spend a little bit of time of understanding who this king is not just for today, not just for this moment, but as we go through the book, he is a prominent and important character because the authors spent so much time highlighting a lot about the king. The king we're talking about is King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, depending on whether you use the Greek or Hebrew translation. Uh, I use Xerxes because it's easier for a simple man to pronounce. We can learn so much about ourselves and so much about Jesus from this passage, even though we're not mentioned, even though Jesus, God is not mentioned in this passage. And I believe the writer wants us to consider today and every day who ultimately is king. Who's in control, or as I prefer to say, and I prefer to term it, who's on the throne? You might see I've brought my throne with me this morning. It had a little mishap, so if it falls and I break something because the leg of my throne's broken, just pray for me and we believe in healing, so we'll be all right. Hands up if you'd like to have a big throne at home. No one's honest. All right. Let's read this passage. We'll pray and get into it. Esther 1 verses 1 to 9. I'm reading from the NIV this morning. It says, this is what happened. This is the start of the book of Esther. We did an intro two weeks ago, but we didn't actually read from Esther. We just talked about context and everything else. Now we're in Esther 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Now, Kush is the border of modern-day Ethiopia. So get that in your head. If I was more organised, we'd have a, a big picture of the maps, but we're not. So if you Google um, the Persian Empire map, you'll see it perfectly. So don't worry about it. And at the time King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne, this is a little bit nicer than my throne here today, in the citadel of Susa. Does anyone know what a citadel is? A citadel is like a fortified part of the city, like a gated community. You think Hollywood, you think there's a certain people, the high-end people, they live in a gated, fortified community because they don't want to associate with the riffraff. They don't want to be part of the general crowd. So that's what the citadel was, where the king, all the important people, anyone who's anyone, lived there. And in the third year of his reign, it took two to warm in, 
He gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. Get this. For a full 180 days, that's a party, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, we've finished 180 days of partying. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet. He had another party lasting seven days. Just a quick one. In the enclosed gardens of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings. Listen, listen to, this is not his, just his castle. This is the gardens of his castle. This is the extended part, you know, your backyard. It's not the best, the best in your home, in your castle. This is just a little bit further out in the gardens. The the gardens had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material. Now, purple material was in the day hard to get. It was worth the equivalent of what silver and gold. It was so precious, so rare. Some of the people would have never seen purple linen. He had it hanging in his garden. And and silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches or benches, depending on your translation, or seats of gold and silver. And they were seated on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. It's a reasonably good garden. It would be on Pinterest and it would be one of the favourite things to uh, take photos of and pin to your Pinterest site. Wine was served in goblets of gold. Not glass, not silver, but gold. Each one different from the other. They're all handcrafted, all made fairly nice. And you're thinking, we're talking hundreds and thousands of people each drinking wine out of gold goblets. Not a bad party. And the royal wine was abundant. I was going to say they were getting pissed, but that's a bit rough. They were getting drunk. In keeping with the king's liberality. But the king's command, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. It's an open bar. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man as he wished. Verse 9 says, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. It's almost like there's two palaces, one for King Xerxes, one for Queen Vashti. And so there's the 180-day party followed by his seven-day quick little just shindig. And Queen Vashti has all the ladies also having a party. Not a bad time to be alive, let's be honest. Let's pray and then we'll get straight into it. Lord, as we just go through this crazy passage of Scripture, Lord, I pray that we see you. I pray that you give us something that we can take hold of. pray that you give us something that we can uh, take into every day of our lives, that we would not be the same again, that we would grow in our love, our knowledge and our adoration of you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. We don't get to Esther and Mordecai, but we can see that they live in interesting times, right? They're under the rule of an interesting king and queen. And the truth is we live in interesting times. If you do a bit of a search of Christianity around the first world, so we're talking all the modern day worlds, you'd be able to conclude that for the last 50 years, the percentage of Christians in the first world has been decreasing. Some modern day Prophets would use that decline to say that the end is near and perhaps they're right, perhaps they're wrong. 
Some experts and scholars would say that this historic trend of the gospel worldwide is just what it is, and it goes up and down as, as, a, as a cyclical type of thing. The pessimists would say that God's you know, judging our first world for our greed and all sorts of other things. The optimists would say, well, actually, that just means there's more people who we can evangelise and who we can go and make disciples. Whatever the explanation, the percentage of Christians in every first world country has been decreasing over the last 50 years in Australia, America, England, the list goes on. You know, thank God for China, thank God for India because Christianity is exploding in, in some of the third world countries and other places around the world. When I was a kid, we could have comfortably said, now that's only 25 years ago, we could have said this is a Christian nation, confidently. I don't know how we could, if we could really believe that if we said that today. It seems to have slipped, changed pretty quickly in my lifetime. So we here today are Christians, but if we're honest, it's hard to be a Christian in a world that seems contradictory to everything that we believe. Like our kids are taught things at school that go against some of our beliefs. The courts make decisions that don't, that don't reflect what we believe. Our values, television shows get raunchier and crazier and more graphic all the time. You know, a lot of the time when we have conversations in our house is we're not sure if we want our kids to go to sleepovers because we don't know what they're going to get sewn into their lives or done to them for crying out loud. Like, it's crazy. But I want to remind us and I want us to understand and as we lean into this culture in the book of Esther that this is not a new thing. It's a normal thing. Historically, the people of God have almost always been in the minority in their respective countries and cultures. Jesus and his disciples were branded and um ostracized and they were persecuted and they weren't in the cultural norm. Their Christian beliefs weren't the majority. Roman Christians were persecuted fiercely and killed for their beliefs. And even before Christ came, God's people knew what it was like to live for God in a godless society, in a godless culture, in a godless world. And that's what we're going to be studying as we look at the book of Esther over the next couple of months, so there's so much relevance for us because sometimes we can go, God, we know you're on the throne, but it just doesn't feel like it. It feels like the throne's empty. It feels like you're not there. And then what tends to happen is we try to manufacture it and, and try to gain control and try to put ourselves on the throne or put someone else on the throne. And what we're going to find as we study the book of Esther is that God is truly always on the throne, whether we acknowledge it or not. Having said all that I said, and I don't mean to start so glum this morning, it can lead us to a personal and um, applicable question for our lives. Um, do we find it tough to live in this world? Like to live straight, moral, in a twisted and immoral world? Do we find it tough to live godly in a godless nation? So the book of Peter, in his first letter, he says to Christians, to us, live such good lives that when others want to slander you, they're going to have to make up lies. 
I love that. Sometimes in the toughness of life, we find it easier to slip morally just a little bit rather than to maintain the line, rather than to play it straight. Because like, if I maintain my integrity and I maintain my morals, then I might lose that big work contract or I might not get that distinction or I might not get the promotion or people might not like me. Sometimes it's tough to live straight, tough to live right, tough to live moral, righteously because we're worried about what we are going to lose. But the truth is, as Christians, what we should not want to lose is relationship and connection to God. We're staying and living in that perfect will and perfect place and perfect plan for our lives with him as king and us living under his rule. And the reality of how we can do that, and we're acknowledging that it's hard, all comes back to who we view as on the throne. Who do we glory? Who do we honour? Who do we trust in? And who do we believe is in control? And all of that can be wrapped up with who we believe is sitting on the throne. And the, the answer is Jesus. He's always on the throne. He's the king above kings. His kingdom will never end and it cannot be beaten. But what we tend to do is we tend to forget that and we decide someone else is seated on the throne. Sometimes we give glory to ourselves and then we find ourselves aiming to sit on our throne. Sometimes we honour and we show honour to something or someone rather than God. Sometimes we shift what we trust in. You know, a lot of the time in my life, I put my trust in money and I put money on the throne. And I know you're like me. Sometimes we put our trust in people rather than God and we put people on the throne. Sometimes we put our trust in possessions and we try to put possessions on the throne. Sometimes we want to believe we are in control instead of accepting God is in control. And in reading the story of Esther, we're going to discover that God's actually always in charge, even in the events in the kingdom of King Xerxes, a pagan king, an immoral society. Even though King Xerxes would think he's in control, would think he's the highest ever rule, would think he's the king of kings. What we're going to see as we go through this is that God, even though not mentioned in the book, is absolutely in control. And in chapter 1 of Esther, the writer sets the scene with like this it's, it's almost like his um, ADD or absolutely over the top with this serious enthusiasm, um, hoping that we're going to catch the irony that of a man who's all about self-glory, who's all about um, self-platformism, if that's even a word, and all about self-control because King Xerxes wants to believe he's on the throne. King Xerxes wants to trick himself into believing that he's powerful, that he's in control, and he's also trying to bribe or trick or, you know, convince others to think the same. And the writer kind of wants us to see what is not obvious at first. And so he shows us all this craziness and extravagance, hopefully to point out that it ends up leading to emptiness. All this luxury, all this extravagant kingdom ends to nothing and to discover that God is always working behind the scenes despite what it might look like. 
And so the writer paints in chapter 1 this picture of the courts of King Xerxes with such extravagant style and crazy detail. He's talking about the, the gold couches and under the gold couches. He's talking about the pavements. He's taking time and he wants us to see the absolute craziness of Xerxes' spending, of his wanting to glorify himself, wanting to be made seen as all wonderful. And as the author narrates, he sets up a hidden agenda that I believe he wants us to see and understand before we meet um, the Jews who are the key to this story in Esther and Mordecai, who, like us, live in a time where it's hard to live godly in a godless culture. And so this hidden agenda that the author is trying to establish is who's really on the throne? Is it King Xerxes, this current temporary king? Because we're all temporary. No matter if we live 30 years or 120 years, Every human in this world is temporary. And so is a human on the throne or a greater power of an eternal and unseen God. And so the first four verses, I want to read them again and then we'll just break that down a little bit. It says, this is what happens during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush or Ethiopia. At the time King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne, not just a simple throne, a royal throne in the citadel of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet to all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. This king had power over the entire known world. It would be like one world president. That's the kind of status he had in human conditions. And so you and I and everyone should be impressed. I think the writer wants us to be impressed. Right? The author wants us to be impressed. The author is almost speechless for words. He almost can't write how amazing, how much money, how much wealth one human could possibly have and also display. It's almost like in the writing that he's taken the mickey out of it. He's like so over-the-top extravagant. And so we just read that King Xerxes has this banquet, this feast, this party, a function for six months. And so who was invited? Well, princes were invited. The, the best in society, senior military officials, civil administrators and other key leaders from all across his kingdom. You know, it's not like today you can't just go have an online meeting and get everyone from all the different areas to, to go online and you can't just outline your plan. So he has to find another way to remind them that he's the king, that he's the boy, that he's the man. And so what does he do? What's going on here? Well, secular history tells us, and there's so much information about King Xerxes just in history books, um, but it tells us that there was a massive military planning party. It wasn't just a let's all just go and party for no reason. There's strategy behind it. It's a little bit of show, it's a little bit of PR, and a big a lot of bribery. Get everyone on board. King Xerxes' father had planned this military expedition against the Greeks, and he'd gone out once and he'd failed the first time, and then Xerxes' father died before he could pull off a second attack. And so King Xerxes, the son of a king who's been once defeated but wanted to go again, Xerxes wants to go and finish what his father had started. 
So this wasn't just a six-month-long party for no reason. It was strategy and planning session with everyone from across his kingdom, all the important people, all the people who he could convince to follow him, that he was king, that he was worthy of all glory. He was worthy of laying your life down for. And so it was absolutely and intentionally lavish because he wants to impress the powerful and influential people with all the far-reaching corners of his empire. He wants them to hope in him. He wants them to trust in him and glorify him as king seated powerfully on the throne. Because the truth is, he's not silly. He needs their troops. He needs their support to make this proposed military campaign happen. And so he invites them into the biggest, loudest, craziest, loosest party ever in the history of mankind. And the idea is if he's seen in rich and glory for long enough, then the people of the 127 provinces will start to have ingrained thoughts such as, wow, King Xerxes is strong. Wow, King Xerxes is generous. It's not just a one-week party. It's not just a help us out occasionally. This is six months with the king. He's mighty. And they're going, wow. And all of a sudden, like, he can start to bluff his way through this because eventually if you've got enough money, you can start to make people just go, wow, this is amazing. So eventually they start to think his plan could work. They'll eventually think, well, if he's so powerful, so mighty, so generous, so amazing, then maybe I will raise up troops. I'll provide resources and support for this endeavour because King Xerxes is worthy. So he has this massive party to declare his intentions and to awe his military and civilian officers to supporting this crazy plan. History books state that they set out about one year after this party. Probably took them that long to get over the hangover, right? And so when we get to chapter 2, we have to understand historically between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2, there's a large space of time. Esther wasn't actually crowned queen until he'd returned from that expedition. Um, and the truth is, if you want to know how that attack went, it started good and ultimately ended up failing. And I guess the question we're going to ask at this stage is there's so much said about this King Xerxes guy. What kind of guy is he? What's he like? And truthfully, when you start to read a little bit about him, you'll find that he's quite smart and quite strategic. He had this military plan, gather an army, woo them, smart, march over this straight, um, have engineers erect a bridge to give them great access so that they're not um, not in a disadvantage when they're going into battle. Um march his army across, conquer Greece, burn Athens down, have the navy protect the bridge so that the Greeks um, can't come and wreck your bridge and make passage across harder. He had this absolutely planned out. But the problem is, good strategic guy, flawed character. History will tell us that his uncle had advised against this adventure, reasoning that if the Greek navy managed to destroy the bridge that Xerxes wanted to build, he and his army would be cut off, unable to come back, and they would ultimately be slaughtered. You know what Xerxes said to his uncle? He called him a faint-hearted coward. And then he ordered him to stay home with the women while he marched forth in battle. The engineers were sent ahead to build this bridge that was going to be the strategic uh, entryway in to take on Greece into battle. When the army finally reached the bridge, a great storm destroyed it. Xerxes was furious, right? This is the flawed character of the guy. So he ordered the water lashed in punishment. Crazy. Rebuking the waves, destroying the bridge. So they, they have to be punished because of that. 
And even more disturbing, Xerxes decided that the construction supervisors should be decapitated. Another story recorded in history revealing a flawed character is that one of the trusted elderly servants accompanying the expedition, they were marching towards his bridge and he had second thoughts about going on. So he asked Xerxes who he knew, who he loved, who he trusted, if he could take his eldest son and return home, just leaving the other four sons to continue on with the expedition. Xerxes was furious because this servant did not have full trust in him. He said, no, had the eldest son killed, cut in half, placed on either side of the road so that the rest of the military would march past and see what happens when you disobey the plans and purpose and don't trust the strategies of King Xerxes. He then made that trusted elderly servant continue on with the exposition just to prove a point that King Xerxes was to be followed. No questions were to be asked. Why do I tell you all that? Because we need to know that King Xerxes was not a kind, godly or nice man. He was not a good king. He was a jerk. A self-absorbed, self-obsessed, not giving glory to God on the throne, but aiming to be seen on the throne himself and aiming for others to glory him sitting on the throne. So let me get to Esther 5 to 9, 1 verses 5 to 9. It says, And then when these days were complete, 180 days of strategic partying and planning, the king gave um, for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So he's wooed all the people he's needed to woo. So he's going to have a big army. Now he just needs to convince those close to him, those in power close to him, that this is a good idea. So we'll have another small party, seven days. And then it goes on and explains there were white cotton curtains and and violet hangings fastened with cords and the fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble. Do you know their curtain rods were made of silver? It's not a bad use of silver, hey. Drinks were served in gold vessels. It goes on and on and on. So at the end of six months planning, they kept everything off with another party, a massive party, completed, and it, it tells us with lots more drinking. The, the royal wine was abundant and everyone drank as much as they wanted and as much as they could. And when you start to read into Persian culture, you're going to learn, and this is crazy, but it's true, the Persians believed that important matters should be decided while they were drunk. And then if things still made sense once they were sober, then they went with it. I'm not kidding. These seven days of drunkenness were intended to be like the capstone or the, you know, the end point of Xerxes' military planning party and it's doubling down on a party to end all parties. It's invite more people and see the power and extravagance of the king. The Persians believed that drunkenness put them in touch with the spiritual world and that confirming their decision by becoming ridiculously, riotously drunk was an important part of their planning process. Crazy. The king wanted to rule him, he wanted everyone to like him and he wanted everyone to know he was doing well for himself and that he was of status. He wanted them to love him. He wanted them to follow him. He wanted them to become on point with his purpose, with his plans. And so he invited them to his castle to see his glory, to see that he is king and he's in control and he's on the throne. And if you band with him, everything will work out. 
if that's not enough to show his power, the, the curtains and the gold and everything else, it's open bar, it's endless food. And I hate to point out, but it's also endless women for the men from his harem. That's how it went. So when you read all that and you understand some of the historical context of King Xerxes' character, if I was to ask you, what's your view of King Xerxes? Was he a good king? Great bloke? You'd probably say no. He was a bad king. He was a horrible man. He was a self-absorbed pig. Truth is, he was probably very similar to you or me. Ouch. Caught in the tension of wanting to be on the throne rather than giving the throne to God. Caught in the tension of, do I follow God's plans or do I follow my plans? Am I wanting to gain glory for someone else or am I wanting to gain glory for me? And do you know the difference between King Xerxes and me or King Xerxes and you? He had the resource to throw a big party. Yes, he lived in a different cultural day. But it scares me to think that if I was in his position with the same resources living in the same cultural context, how would I be? Would I be the same? He threw a party for 180 days with good food and good drink in his uh, jazzed up house to impress a certain amount of people. But we do exactly the same thing. On a smaller scale, with our limited resources, our homes are our castles and we invite people around for dinner or for barbecues or for festivities and we have the house looking its best. We don't have silver curtain rods, but we've got the best that we can afford. And we invite people around for dinner and we serve the best food we possibly can and we serve the best drink because we want them to like us. We want them in some weird kind of way to be part of what we want to do. We want people to say, aren't the Muslims great? So the difference between Xerxes and us is resource, it's opportunity, because both Xerxes and us, we all have times in our lives where we want to be the one who sits on the throne and receive all power and all honour and all glory and all praise. But the reality of this world is while Xerxes sits on his throne and while we often try and make ourselves a throne and rule in our little kingdoms, there's a greater kingdom and there's a greater king and he's at work whether we acknowledge it or not and his name is Jesus. And as we look at the kingship of Xerxes, I believe the author wants us to see his flaws, see his failings, and also see that Jesus is greater. Because the truth and the reality above Xerxes and above the times when we try to sit on our throne, the truth is that there's a greater throne and a greater king. And that greater king is Jesus. Xerxes said of himself in an inscription uncovered by archaeologists, them people, people who dig old stuff up, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries, which speak all languages, the king of his entire big and far-reaching earth. I'd like something similar on my tombstone. 
think it's Mark Driscoll says, Xerxes thought he was Jesus. Xerxes thought he was the king of kings. Truth is, some of us sometimes think we're Jesus. Some of us think we're that good. Some of us think others are Jesus. We give honour and glory and praise and worship and obedience to other people who we place on the throne. But Jesus is the greatest king. Xerxes was the son of Darius, but Jesus was the son of God. Xerxes never tasted humility or poverty, but Jesus gladly accepted both so that he could connect with you and me. Xerxes used his power to use and abuse women. Jesus used his power to save and honour and cherish women. Xerxes spent his whole life being served. Jesus lived his whole life serving. Xerxes killed his enemies because of selfish gain, without grace, without remorse. Jesus died while we were still his enemies. Xerxes sat on a throne in a citadel of Susa. Jesus sits on a throne ruling and reigning in heaven. While Xerxes at the time may have been considered the most powerful man on the earth, Jesus made that earth. The truth is Xerxes died and today no one's worshipping him. Jesus conquered death and today billions worship him as the king of kings. Xerxes thought he was a man who became a god because of money, because of conquests. Jesus was God who became man for us. Xerxes threw parties that lasted three whole months. Do you know Jesus is preparing a party, a banquet, a feast for us that's going to go for eternity? Xerxes' empire died. As powerful as it was, as unstoppable as it was, Jesus' kingdom is eternal. It has no ends. Church, we are citizens of this greater kingdom. We've received this greater gift. We're invited to a greater feast and a greater party and we gather in the name and presence of a far greater King Jesus. Our King knows us and loves us. He saves us. He seeks us. He serves us. And he's preparing an eternal banquet for us. So the question is, who's on the throne? And the answer is Jesus is. And we need not forget that. And he's always on the throne. Our problem is sometimes I try, you try, we try to be Jesus. We try to take his place as king and we try to get some of that glory that's intended for him. Who's on the throne? Not Xerxes, not Trump, not ScoMo, not ISIS, not Putin, not you, not me. Jesus is and he deserves our glory and our honour and our praise. And in closing, I just want to show you verse 9. It says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. Now, the interesting thing is we see Xerxes displayed in his full power yet all the time. God's at work because what we're going to see next week, and John's going to talk about it, is the queen 
says no to this all-powerful king and that makes a way for God to be able to put Esther into the palace who can then, we see God at work right through. Because while it looks like Xerxes is on his throne with all power and all majesty and everyone adoring him, God's at work because he's always on the throne. Let me pray and we're done. Father God, thank you for today. Lord, thank you that as we look at King Xerxes, we see the reflection past his failings, past him. We see ourselves, but it highlights that you are on the throne, not us, that we are flawed, that we are failures, but we serve a greater king. Lord, and we just thank you that you are on the throne and through you we become royal priesthood. We become part of your royal family. Lord, that as we give you glory on the throne, as we give you honour on the throne, as we give you all majesty, Lord, that things will just be incredible. Lord, we thank you that you're preparing a feast, a party, a banquet for us in heaven. And the explanation of Xerxes' kingdom is minute, is minor, fails in, in majesty compared to heaven, compared to your kingdom where we will one day party with you. Lord, help us this week, each day, each moment of our lives to remember that you're on the throne, not us, not anyone else, that you're in control even when it seems like you're not in control. Lord, we just give you all praise, all glory and honour. In your mighty name we pray, Jesus. Amen.